I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. This edition of the From My Angle podcast features an excerpt from my October Topic and Tour event at the Hillcrest campus. I've used the Topic and Tour meetings three to four times a year to update parents on a relevant topic pertaining to the school's academic or co-curricular program, operations, or vision for the future. During the second half of the Topic and Tour event, I've taken parents into classrooms to see firsthand the aspects of our academic program discussed during the topic session of the meeting. The October 2018 Topic and Tour actually featured two topics. First, we shared some observations and results of our recent reaccreditation visit from the Independent Schools Association of the Southwest and Southwest Association of Episcopal Schools, the two entities that accredit Parish every 10 years. Next, we discussed Parish's Center for College and Life Planning, specifically some of the changing features of preparing students for the complex global society to which we refer in our mission statement that are informing how we orient programming in the Center for College and Life Planning. Whether you joined us in October or not, I think you will find the information in this episode to be valuable and thought-provoking. So enjoy your learning on this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Good to see you, and I'm glad you're here. And uh, for those that are here, we'll, we'll run through the agenda as planned and, um, and, and answer your questions. We'd like to be on our way by 9.15 or so uh, in to see classes, but if uh, questions uh, carry us over uh, and you want to stay here for a little bit, we can certainly do that too. We have two topics for the topic today. Uh, one is accreditation, which I'll move through fairly quickly, and then uh, my friends in the Center for College and Life Planning are here, and we'll talk a little bit about, uh, about that. And I will say um, that I think you're fortunate to be here, and I think you're smart, you parents that came, and I cannot understand why parents in our schools right now, south of seventh grade, are not uh, teaming into this issue. Not because it's about how to get your kid into Harvard, but because the landscape of higher ed is changing dramatically, the college admissions game is changing dramatically, the pathways are, are variant and exciting and emergent, and I'm just not so sure why parents are not and will not plug into it, but perhaps those of you watching at home will come to the next one uh, to learn a little bit more about this. Let's talk about accreditation first. As you know, we were visited earlier this month uh, by uh, the Independent School Association of the Southwest and the Southwest Association of Episcopal Schools. Those are the two entities uh, that accredit our school. It's important as a parent, uh, an employee, for that matter, to understand why. First of all, they come in and they check your documentation to a series of, adhere, uh, of standards to which you must adhere. These essentially provide assurance to the state of Texas, because we're not a public school, that we are operating the school in compliance with a series or set of expectations of standard or standards of operative excellence, right? Uh, and so uh, this body comes in, uh, these two associations, and review that. The adherence to these operational standards of, uh, of expectation and excellence are also important to the schools that accept your children, so it does tie in uh, to the very uh, subject of today with the Center for College and Life Planning, uh, and it is important that uh, those entities recognize us as an accredited school when it comes to things like the financial aid that your children uh, might, might receive when they come to that college or university. That's part one of the accreditation process. The second is a, a self-study that is compiled for them, which effectively says how we are living into our mission and how we seek to live into it better. Uh, the body uh, spends time reading that before their visit and then comes in and participates in a series of activities to learn more about that. This is the group that came, or 18 uh, uh, individuals, some representing the associations themselves, others representing 14 independent schools from 
uh, New Mexico to uh, Louisiana, uh, and they were here for uh, the three days as I uh, suggested. Uh, they were uniquely uh, selected for this visit um, because of the nature of the uh, kind of customized or personalized model. The parish was among the first schools uh, afforded the opportunity to, um, to, to utilize. Uh, so they represented, I would suggest, a tier um, of, of administrative depth and experience that was uh, unique for uh, such visits. Many of you participated in what they did. What they did uh, involved getting around to see our programs and talk to our kids. They did panels with parents and faculty uh, and students. They also participated in eight 90-minute engagements with members of our community. Uh, again, this uh, was board members, faculty leaders, uh, administrators, uh, in some instances parents, uh, to tackle a series of questions that we laid before them relative to the implementation of our school change reimagine um, endeavor. Uh, you can see uh, in, in this instance here, uh, uh, which I won't show for a, a video here, you can actually see the construction of the groups around an activity, looking at options, weighing the pros and cons of those particular um, questions that were placed before them. And then they leave us at the end of the visit a series of uh, recommendations and commendations, which I'll speak to in a minute. But I think it's uh, interesting to see what was uh, given to us in terms of sort of the intro to those recommendations and commendations. Uh, this is some of the language left for us from the introduction to, uh, to, to the, uh, to, to the self-study itself, the notion of our exemplary uh, nature, the constituency of, of high expectation, a school of high expectation, this pace of activity and innovation at the school described as breathtaking, uh, this notion that while many schools talk about being leading edge and challenging the status quo, Parish is living that out each and every day. So we appreciated uh, that recognition, that fact of authenticity to this notion of the entrepreneurial innovative spirit that we have here and really the breadth of the constituency's uh, acceptance of that. And then I think they spoke to the history of the school, which of course comes back over to this campus uh, some 46 years ago. Uh, this sort of arc of possibility, this arc of hope of as or aspiration that has been Parrish's story and particularly the last 15 years since the expansion. Uh, the language here about uh, the school's growth and development over that last 15 years, it's repositioning in the market from the sweet little church neighborhood school that served primarily Northwood Hills to the uh, K-12 uh, independent, pre-K-12 independent school that serves 1140 kids from 75 zip codes across the metro uh, Metroplex all in the last 15 years, uh, I think is really a, a broad uh, commendation uh, and something that the community should be very, very proud of. The uh, summary recommendations that they gave us were on topics such as these, clarity around change in our community, uh, the evaluation of our space and enrollment capacity. They think uh, that there may be opportunities for us to, uh, to, to explore that. Uh, they noticed our development staff uh, could have a, uh, the, the need for additions down the road. Uh, this uh, church school bond is a very strong one. I would say it's exemplary in our association, but they know that it needs to be tended to beyond the leaders that are presently in place in those organizations. They want us to uh, continue working on the security assessment presently undertaken by our task force. Also, the task force around uh, diversity and inclusion, as you may be aware, is busy at work, and they think that that's an important effort that should be uh, unfolded over this next decade. And then they really want us to look to get our three divisions to work to continue to drive agreement or alignment on what the type of uh, teaching and learning you're going to see in the classrooms today looks like 
in all three divisions developmentally. How does that actually align? When, and how do we, how do we have uniformity of, of, of uh, philosophy and opinion upon that? So what happens with these recommendations is uh, once they vote to re-accredit us at the November meeting here in a couple of weeks, which uh, I am uh, very positive will take place, uh, those recommendations come to us uh, really with the expectation that over the next decade we take action on them and show uh, progress toward those summary recommendations. They have left uh, us also a series of recommendations coming out of those eight conversations I spoke about, which I didn't di um, uh, uh, dissect for you all. Um, we will put that into effect as we continue our work moving the school forward. So uh, it all net-net, exceptionally positive uh, experience for the school, one that's left us with excellent uh, affirmation for who we are and what we've accomplished and what we're doing, and also great recommendations uh, moving forward. Can I take any questions quickly on the accreditation piece before we flip over to the CCLP? Given that they saw us 10 years ago mm -hmm. when you first came, right. have we Yeah, great question. Mm -hmm. Yep, in fact, we, ha we did one of the, uh, for example, one of the most significant uh, recommendations left to us in the 2009 visitation was to ensure the true independence between the church and the school, right? And so in 2012, 2013, as some of you may know, uh, we essentially unbundled from the church. And instead of being parish Episcopal school of the Church of the Transfiguration, we are now parish Episcopal school as an independent entity by bylaw and corporate membership. It was a significant undertaking. That's just one example of uh, what they had left for us in those summary recommendations. So all those were off the, off the table, fortunately, when they, when they came back. Good question. Any others? So we have an annual report that we need to do for them, and then we have a five-year reaccreditation report of a little bit more breadth that we have to give to them. There is no visit back in terms of individuals, though I would love in the customized model for that to be something that the uh, associations um, 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 implement. It would be great to have a smaller section of those 18 people, maybe six to eight, who wanted to come back and, and see how we're doing and continue to give us guidance. But at this point, that's not been built into the, uh, to the structure of how they've looked at these customized visits. Okay, great. So let's pivot to um, the Center for College and Life Planning. And I underscore in bold this notion of uh, end life planning. This is a concept that uh, uh, about five years ago, uh, I was um, intent on uh, marrying with our work to reimagine the teaching and learning experience that your kids are actually experiencing each and every day. Uh, this transformation of this office was imperative to me. In fact, I spoke to many about it as being eff effectively uh, the headlight or the, or the, or the uh, uh, major um, uh, light of the lighthouse uh, to, to be the beacon to this community as to what we were trying to do here. And as I just give you some preparatory marks before Lisa uh, and Sam speak to you, I think it's, un it's important that we all understand the context of why. Uh, one of the major drivers of Reimagine uh, has been essentially what I see as uh, sort of the corrupted disc phenomenon of the school experience, right? You know, you got those old floppy disks from back in the day and you stick it in the computer and they work for a while and they work for a while and they work for a while and then they get corrupted and they don't work as well anymore, right? And I think there are elements of our present model that don't work well for kids anymore, primarily on the mental health side, right? Primarily on the mental health side. And we've let this corrupted floppy dick discontinue to try to save our, our, um, co our content uh, and save our uh, material. And it's just not, uh, it's just not uh, an effective model anymore. Our kids are struggling 
in great part, as our parents are, under the ratcheted up anxiety of the college placement game. So for us, switching uh, psychologically and in real terms what the uh, Center for College and Life Planning would do was imperative to really get away from the notion of a college counseling office and broaden the expectation uh, about what this experience would be. So for me, this was always about this group of kids, right? Our youngest group of kids here, this group right here, this cohort, go to college in 2033. And you have to keep that in mind, right? And that's why I just don't know why I can't grab the attention of parents who I think are sending their kids in great part because they think this product's gonna develop them to the college experience that they went to 8, 10, 12, 15 years ago. They've just dropped them here as four years olds and are expecting in 2023, or 2033, I should say, that college experience to be the one that they experience, right? And what you're gonna, I think, get some overview on today is the fact that I don't think it's gonna be that way. Not for everyone that leaves this school, right? What lies ahead for that group of students and students who are, I think, just uh, five to seven years older than they are is a set of divergent pathways post-parish. It's not to mean that the four-year brick-and-mortar college experience isn't valuable. All research and data suggest it's immensely so in terms of economic well-being. But it does not necessarily mean that that four-year brick-and-mortar college experience is best for all at 18 years old, or is necessarily having to happen at 18 for each and every student coming out of school. And this is fundamentally where the shifts are taking place. And you do have to be a bit down in the weeds or super high in the clouds, depending on how you want to look at it, to really be tuning into this, right? It's not something that the, um, that the uh, regular news media is paying particular attention to. I'll frame maybe three um, sort of shifts that are taking place that I think set the context for why uh, we decided to pivot how this office is functioning presently and will especially be functioning differently um, in the years to come. There are questions that there have been for a long time around college affordability. You see on the left-hand side, a little bit difficult to read, but at about the time, this is 2033, at about the time those cute little parish Episcopal kiddos head off to a four-year private college university in 2033, the cost of that four-year experience will be $323,000, right? So that's, you know, kind of how you look at it between 80 and 90K per year. Now, you and I both know that the amount of discounting going on in colleges is nearly 50% at this point. Many in this room, though, know that you will be among the audience that's expected to pay that full freight, right? This is the reality. So our colleges and universities are becoming essentially subject to the, to the, uh, to the barbell phenomenon, which is that you have a large number of folks at one end of the barbell who are being uh, essentially discounted or merited or legitimately scholarship to come based on financial need. And then you have a, uh, people at the other end of the barbell who are expected to pay the full freight. You know who's getting squeezed out? It's people in the middle. And middle is incomes that would surprise you, $150,000 and higher uh, disp um, uh, as, a, as an income, as a family income, right? Are those individuals right now who are being squeezed out of that game, right? So many will find a way, but for this notion of the middle class and how, and that middle class now is, is not the middle class of yesteryear, my friends. It's not the $50,000 to $100,000 income. It is the north of 100,000, north of $150,000 a year that are that middle class. They are gonna to continue to be pinched by the college affordability question. And note, even for those of us that have kids that 
uh, private universities, which are roughly 50 cents on the dollar in today's money, right? So TC's at NM, and he could have gone to uh, Butler, or he could have gone to Syracuse, private universities, other places that he was in. He'd have been playing, we'd been paying twice as much as he is at NM, right? But even there, that number is, you know, close to $190,000 over four years, right? Because state funding for our public universities is being ratcheted, is ratcheted down. So all of this suggests that for those families that get to that 18-year-old point and consider the financial value return on the investment, cost is going to increasingly be a point of consternation. Okay? Second factor is that new higher ed models themselves are emerging. Right? Some of our leading universities, Georgetown, MIT, Georgia Tech, Southern New Hampshire University, Arizona State, Purdue, are all significantly changing the way that they look at how the model works. Georgia Tech is one of the more interesting ones. You can go online and read this report, uh, uh, their 2040 report. Uh, they are talking, as many are now, about essentially a, net, a Netflix model of, of higher education. This is notion that you subscribe, you don't enroll. You subscribe to a college as you do to your Netflix and you engage in that experience over a series of years rather than just four from 18 to 22. Which, when we think about it, really is so anachronistic in what the uh, modern world demands from all of us to continue learning that somehow we take our 18 to 22 year olds and we park them on a brick and mortar campus and suggest that that is in some ways the termination of their learning experience. Universities are realizing that. They're also recognizing, based to point one around finances, that there is an untapped market of 24 to 64 year olds who they need to engage, right? And they need to bring back into their communities both because the world demands it, and there's uh, also then an economic need for it as well. So these pathways, even into higher ed, are going to present options for, I think, the class of 2033 in terms of how they consume the product, right? Do they go for an associate's degree for a couple of years to mature up and get some work experience before they go to a four-year experience? Will they look at four-year schools that have spread out the options, as Stanford has proposed in one of their plans around looping, which could mean you get six years of education for tuition. Take them where you wish. These are, this is a concept and an idea that they're playing with. Uh, so there are going to be innumerable models out there that I think parents need to begin paying attention to and getting smart, especially if their kids have a long trajectory before they get to, um, to that college choice. And finally, there's this itself, and this is super fascinating to me. Lisa and I were just on this webcast on ramps and off ramps a couple of weeks ago. I pay a lot of attention to this space. I'm fascinated by it. But it's the notion that for you and for me, the effectively solely credit, uh, credible uh, certificate or designation of readiness for work was the college degree, the college diploma, or your master's degree, or your doctorate, whatever the case may be. And I think this is shifting around some of the previous pressures already articulated here, around the workplace shifting, which is so dramatic, changing so quickly, flattening so much, around employer dissatisfaction with what's coming out of our colleges and universities relative to preparedness, that you are seeing, as is suggested here, uh, the, the, the notion that private industry is going to move into the degree-granting space. Right? And they're going to be offering credentials and certifications and badges, which when they become recognizable 
to the workplace are going to challenge at some level, not uniformly or broadly necessarily, but at some level, the need for folks to invest $360,000 on four years of a brick and mortar experience at college X, Y, or Z from 18 to 22. See? So whether it's as they proposed over here in the UK where LinkedIn might be a degree grantor, or as we heard last month about the Google IT certificate, uh, you know, you, you take a five course module over eight weeks created by Google at $49 a month because they're backing it with some of their own philanthropic dollars so that folks coming out of the services or who are refugees can get in and get degrees. Arizona State's doing this with Starbucks. There are innumerable models out and out now. Purdue has just, uh, just um, uh, bought uh, uh, and, and uh, kind of procured an online uh, learning function to go to Purdue Global. These notions of uh, these types of certificates that students can procure, and I think they'll broaden out of the IT space into areas like accounting and, and other areas where you can uh, get those kind of uh, credentials and certifications, I think are gonna be on the rise. And it doesn't necessarily mean, again, that of 115 graduates from a parish senior class in 2033, 60 are gonna do this. I think that's unlikely but I'm a little more bullish than most in suggesting that somewhere from 15 to 20 of our kids either should or may choose to have that option, right? These uh, screenshots all come off my Twitter in the last 14 days. So, so like this is the, this is the stuff I'm, I'm sort of digging out of nowhere. This is the stuff that I'm consuming and reading about that talk about, you know, again, the disease of the college chase, right? The Stanford study on the U.S. News and World Report, all these things I just posted for you here, this is all within two days, uh, two weeks, right? And I will close by just suggesting this. To me, as it was from the very beginning, this is really about demystification and about the wellness of our kids and, frankly, our families, you know, because it's 30 years in schools, lifelong independent school uh, brat with my dad in the biz. I've seen the topography of this experience change from when I went into school at Hamilton College in 1985 with an SAT score which wouldn't even get me considered today, right, where they had applicant numbers at a half to probably 60% less than what they have today, I've seen the topography of this change and not necessarily for the better because you as consumers of our product have invested in us too often, a little less so at Parish, but nationally too often with that in mind that this experience here, this investment here, is gonna optimally prepare my kids to get into one of the 20% of schools that accept less than 50% of their applicants, okay? I mean, listen to what I just said, there's less than 20% of the 4,000 degree granting entities in the United States that accept fewer than 50% of our kids. And we have this perseveration and this fixation and this focus in this, com in this, in this national community about getting our kids into those schools, right? And the requisite emission of that, really the toxic admission of that, has been to corrupt the learning experience our kids have on schools like this, to make it more transactional, more grade fixated, more outcome focused, more debilitating, frankly, and the anxiety and stress that's incurred in it, and less enriching ultimately for them uh, and their families as they think about the journey as only defined by the destination and not the actual process and journey itself. Right, because the, I am a good parent if my child gets into school X and Y and Z. And oh, by the way, that's a good school because their kids get into schools X, Y, and Z in a higher percentage. Right? And that's a broken model that through the center, we want to demystify. 
So what's demystification means? It means if you're a parent who's thinking that your kid might not be able to or should not be able to or is not really attuned to or wanting to go to a four-year college after parish, you should be honored and celebrated for that. And in fact, counseled and supported through the center to think about life planning at that moment rather than college planning. But if you're a parent coming up through our pathway who wants an awesome college counseling experience, you're going to get that too. Right? So in handing this over to Lisa, our point through this is that the Center for College and Life Planning is going to become expert in these other elements of the college choice process that we're describing. These two ladies are already experts on the first part. They've worked in schools like ours. They've worked in colleges and universities like UT, OU, Texas A&M. They know both sides of the ledger, but we're working hard over this next decade to get really smart and really out in front on these other options. So as families sit with us, they have the full array of choices that lie ahead of them informed in ways that they can make a decision that's truly in the best interest of their child. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. Our next topic and tour event will take place on the Midway campus on January 17th, 2019. Please be attentive for upcoming announcements about the time, location, and topic for that morning's topic and tour event. Stay tuned as well for upcoming podcast conversations with innovators, educators, and parish community members. Please plan to join us here on the From My Angle podcast. In the meantime, thank you for listening.